I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. We want to be doing projects that reduce GHG and help the U.S. meet its overall climate goals, but doing so in a way that also brings significant benefit to people's lives in a way that they can really touch and feel so that it becomes more real. And this conversation around climate change becomes how accelerating this transition is actually good for people's pocketbooks, good for people's families, for the air they breathe, and for their children. Welcome to Climate Positive. This week, my fellow co-host Chad has a captivating conversation with two remarkable leaders at Calvert Impact, Jen Price, who's the president and CEO, and Beth Bafford, who's the vice president of syndications and strategy. Based in Bethesda, Maryland, Calvert Impact is a global nonprofit investment firm that helps investors and financial professionals invest in solutions that people and the planet need. During this episode, we explore Calvert Impact's history, mission, and nonprofit investor model. Our guests talk about what distinguishes impact investing from ESG investing, and Jen and Beth also share what drew them into the field. Finally, they speak in depth about Calvert Impact's great work to spearhead the Climate United Coalition, which is participating in the EPA's National Clean Investment Fund, a $14 billion grant competition now underway. So with that, here's Chad with Jen and Beth. Jen and Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So first, I'd like to start with Calvert Impact. For over 25 years, you all at Calvert Impact have mobilized billions of dollars to support the growth of high-impact markets such as microfinance, affordable housing, clean energy, all with the goal of meeting our most urgent global challenges. So tell us a little bit about Calvert's history. How did your organization start and, and how has it evolved? Yeah, you bet. This is Jen. And as we go on, it's funny, Beth and I talk or sound alike to most. So, you know, <laughs> I'm going to blame it on her or she'll blame it on me or we'll see who. Yeah. <laughs> people think Gil and I sound exactly the same. So it, it's uh, sometimes when we do an episode together, people don't know who's, who's asking what question. So <laughs> Yeah, so that might be the case here. But to your question, and it's great to be here and to share the history and the work of Calvert Impact. I'll give you the highlights and how Calvert Impact evolved to where we are today, because it's been 30 years and even longer if we go back to 1982, when actually Calvert Impact was incubated in the Calvert family of social responsible mutual funds. And I say that slowly because if you think back, if you can, to 1982, you know, socially responsible was not really a widely known concept. And so for certain, these were some of the biggest family of funds that really hit the market. And it was unorthodox, this concept of a social responsible and a mutual fund in one package. And so, you know, what was interesting is the founders were lucky and smart, the founders being Wayne Silby and John Guffey, which is usually the case in these things. Smart, I think, in the way that they wanted to democratize from day one, who could buy a share of the mutual fund. So they made the entry point $1,000 because they really thought if we want to create a movement here, we need to make it highly accessible. And then they were lucky because in 1983, the anti-apartheid movements broke out across college campuses throughout the U.S. And they were the only mutual fund not investing in companies doing business in South Africa. And that brought attention to the funds and they quickly raised $30 million, which was the break-even point they had identified. And then it just took off from there. The other cool thing they did is they had established a 1% allocation in each of the social funds. And that allocation was to do high social investing. 
And so that meant to them investing directly in communities. And they took 10 investments, $250,000 each, and put them into the 10 strongest community development financial institutions, an acronym CDFIs, that they could find. And it worked. They found out that they could invest and get repaid. And so they took that demonstration and they went to the philanthropic community. And fortunately, Ford, Mott, and MacArthur Foundation got behind the concept and were able to fund the um, initial capital to pull what was then called Calvert Foundation, today Calvert Impact, out of the mutual funds. And when that came out, some of the ethos of the founders came with it, the idea of democratizing. I know we'll get into that later, but creating on-ramps for retail, all investors to take part in investing. And then also the idea to really invest in community. So the early investments were in community development, affordable housing, microfinance, so a global portfolio. And so those were the early roots. 25 later has been some really significant milestones. We've helped others create community investment notes. We incubated a donor advised fund on our balance sheet that spun out into Impact Assets, which is now a $2 billion donor advised fund. We set our sights on scale early on in you know, the 2000s, and we got access to large money centers by getting kind of wired into the wall, so to speak. So getting QCIPs for the notes, the fixed income security, getting looped into DCC so people could trade and close electronically all bringing access to a lot more investors in scaling. And then brought on the idea of investing in climate early on about 10 years ago. And now have been really focused on expanding the products and services we offer to investors. So our flagship product, the Community Investment Note, which started this all 25 years ago, is still there going strong. We've raised about $2 billion through that product. But we've mobilized $5 billion in all sorts of different products, syndication, two asset-backed securities we're bringing to market, an impact-first private equity fund, and more to come. So a lot has happened over 25 years, and a lot more I'm looking forward to happening. Absolutely. That's amazing impact, especially the quantum of dollars that you've been able to mobilize for this community impact. And so... Going into your business model a bit more, you are legally a nonprofit, a 501c3. So you don't have shareholders, you don't have equity holders, but you're also not reliant on external philanthropic funding. You are financially self-sufficient. So tell us a little bit about the rationale behind and structure of this business model. Yep, you nailed it. So one of the tenets of our strategy of our work is no margin, no mission. So, you know, we believe deeply, we have to carry our own water, we need to be self-sufficient. One is for obvious, we want to bring investors into the products and services that we're offering to the market, and for them to be comfortable investing in our products and services, they got to know we're going to be here 10, 15, 20 years from now. And so knowing that we have a business model that's self-sufficient, sustainable, really, really important. And so that, though, was definitely an evolution. We crossed self-sufficiency in 2017. Before that, we were not self-sufficient and did rely on philanthropy. So it took effort and thought to get here. The next arc of our evolution really is around diversifying our revenue. So having multiple ways to ensure that we're resilient and we can handle not only you know macroeconomic events, many that we're seeing in the market, but also be able to really fund innovation and growth. So stretch into new areas, really be on the advent, the tip of the spear of new sectors, investing, 
really being able to push the market even further. That's great. And so how does your 5013 status enable and support the democratization that you previously mentioned to and in, in ensuring that anyone who can invest maybe as little as $1,000 can have access to the sort of community impactful investments that you all originate? Yeah. Some of it is mechanical, which I can get into, might be a little boring. But from a mission perspective, and if you look at our articles in Corporation, it's really fascinating. You know, what we were built on the bedrock of is education. So educating investors, educating others about this ability to invest with a social return to society, whether that return is in the form of, you know, a cleaner planet, better housing, better education all different forms, but that return to society and a financial return. And so that piece around education, I think we'll keep coming back to probably as we talk, because it is work that is not really covered by the cost of capital or the work we charge, you know, that what we charge or the fees we earn. It is kind of the ongoing deep subsidy that we need the 501c3, the nonprofit status to really support and advance. And so let's dive a little bit into the concept of impact investing. It can mean different things to different people, and especially as it relates to ESG investing, which is coming to some crosshairs as of late. So how do you differentiate it from ESG investing, if at all? And how do you think about balancing your dual objectives of sustainable financial returns with measurable social and environmental impact? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked this question because it's interesting. They get grouped together a lot, impact investing and ESG, but to us, they are completely different things. And so I think of ESG as how a company operates and impact on what the company does. And so they're very different analyses when you think of the analysis that's behind an ESG analysis versus an impact analysis. ESG analysis is really focused on Things like the environmental footprint of the company, their labor practices, their governance structure, and it tells you what risks exist for the company's long-term viability based on that analysis, right? Versus an impact analysis, which is focused on the products and services that, that company creates or provides and how those products and services are intentionally addressing a social or environmental challenge in a measurable and tangible way. And so you can have a company, well, we can say Pepsi, right, that has a really strong ESG score because they've got solid corporate practices. But at the end of the day, they make potato chips and sugary beverages, right? Versus a company like Tesla that has had challenges, I would say, on the labor and governance side of, but they make an electric vehicle that's really important for the clean transformation across the country. I'm not usually one to argue that Tesla is an impact investment, but it's useful for illustrative purposes. And so that's how we really distinguish between the ESG space and the impact space, which is what we do, which is we actively invest in companies, organizations, products that have an explicit and intentional social or environmental impact that we can measure and that we can report back to our investors and stakeholders. And that is one of the best explanations of those concepts that I've heard, actually. And as someone who has been both a Tesla consumer and one who enjoys Pepsi products, there's a place for both of them in the marketplace for sure. But you published a really impressive impact report as someone who 
helps lead our impact report. I was very impressed by yours. Tell us a little bit about how you measure this impact that you are specifically focused on and really those really specific social and environmental metrics that also help you drive very systemic market transformations. Yeah, absolutely. So we look at our impact through a few lenses on a few different parts of the market. So all the way from the impact on the end beneficiaries or the people that we are all here to serve. So looking at how are we improving quality and affordable housing? How are we increasing access to clean technologies and measuring that impact? We also measure the impact of the organizations we partner with to do that work. And we call those our portfolio partners. Those are typically the folks that we're investing in or lending to who are building their own strength and resiliency in order to expand the number of people they can serve. Interestingly, we also look at two other aspects that I think most don't tend to, which is investor impact. So as Jen mentioned, what is the impact we're having on shifting behavior of the investor markets? How are we expanding access? How are we getting into new investor markets? How are we changing behavior? Because we think that's really where the systemic change lies. And then lastly, what we call market impact. So how are we helping to mature certain asset classes or certain asset types so that they are more broadly understood, adopted, and scaled in the traditional capital markets? And that's really the kind of market building that we do when we talk about how we're working with sectors that can go from being you know, nascent today and more mature and having broader access to capital you know, 10 years from now. And so we really see that full picture as the impact that we're trying to have on the market. And so our impact report tends to reflect that in going through those different layers. Excellent. And it flows very naturally into the next question, how you fit into the larger ecosystem of private for-profit capital providers like banks and asset managers. There are those that are more mission-driven like HASI and those that are less so. But when do you determine that it's time for you to exit a market because you've been so successful that it has been transformed and the access to more traditional for-profit capital providers is robust? Yeah, it's a great question. And one, I think we're still learning because it has been surprising to me how long it does take for markets to evolve. Like Beth articulated, we look at the market and how it's matured over time. And we have an explicit strategy in our portfolio of scaling and building markets. And what we've seen is the structures are very similar that we all participate in. It's really the stage that we're entering is usually much earlier in its evolution. And therefore, it's much more difficult to get a deal done, right? And therefore, it takes longer. It doesn't even happen sometimes. We have a lot of failed deals, to be honest. And therefore, it just costs more. And for larger asset managers, for more traditional banks, that's not attractive economics for them. To be in the markets where the deals are small, where they take a long time, where they might not even happen. But what we do see is that if we can demonstrate that these are investable deals and then we can scale them and grow them, that we could begin to partner with other more traditional sources of capital, whether it's you know financial institutions or asset managers, and then begin slowly to pass those markets, those assets off to the capital markets. What I've personally seen is the gap between the work, what work that we do and the capital markets, that's the biggest gap. 
you know, there's a lot of blended finance vehicles out there. There's a lot of early demonstrations of what's investable, but getting things to scale to the capital markets, that gap is very, very, very large. And uh, some of it is perceived a real risk. So kind of what we see as risk and what the market sees, their perceived risk is very um, far apart. And we got to bring those together. And that takes time. It takes track record, right? So you need years of showing returns. And some of it is just what people are used to, right? And what people are used to, they build operating procedures and policies off of. And so to change those procedures, to change those policies, to incorporate new assets or new ways of doing things can be very difficult. Change is hard. So, you know, it's very interesting. We've seen some progress over the 30, 40 years that microfinance has been a sector we've invested in, mature, and we are, you know, I would say on the tail end of investing in some of the more mature fund managers. They can access the capital market quite easily. Community development financial institutions, particularly housing, there's some sectors that we've been able to pass off. But a lot of the work that we've done over time, we still need to continue to do because it takes a long time. And there's also always new geographic markets we're even expanding in. So rural markets, emerging markets. Um, So it could be a well-known concept in one geography, but taking it and showing that it can be done in another part of the world, affordable housing is a great example, um, can take time. So not that I want to say our work is never done because I hope soon it will be, but it does take longer than I had ever thought. And part of that process is really educating investors as to the opportunities that are out there, getting them comfortable with the risks. And so I want to talk a little bit about the sources of capital from whom you raise the funds which you invest, your investors. You know, How have you tapped both institutional and retail investors to channel into the, um, the products that you've put together? Yeah, it's a great question. And as Jen mentioned in the beginning, right, really our foundational part of our mission has been this democratizing access and making sure that we are not just building products for institutional investors, but we are building products for everyday investors who really want to have a piece of their individual portfolios um, supporting this work. And so we have both individual and institutional investors. 98% of our investors are individuals, but they contribute about 27% of our total capital. Our individual investors range from $20. So we have a lot of investors that have $20 in our products to $2 million. And our institutional investors range from $1,000 to $50 million. And so it's quite the range. We have a broad diversity of investor types. But one of the things we get excited about is that 55% of our individual investors have household incomes of $150,000 or less. So there is a good chunk of our investor base that are people who don't have large investment portfolios, don't have a lot of in in terms of investable assets, but really want to access these products. It's important to them to vote with their dollars and we are providing access and the ability for them to do so. And so we typically call our community investment note the gateway drug of impact investing (laughs) because about 54% of our investors say that our note was their first impact investment and 62% say they plan to increase their investments. And so it really is typically an opportunity to dip the toe, see that it works, see that they get repaid, realize that this is a real opportunity to both have access to financial returns and impact. 
And once they do that, then they're hooked and they look for additional opportunities. And so part of our expansion plan is to really put additional products in the market so that we're offering a broader suite for those interested. Climate Positive is produced by HASI, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets to facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, please visit HASI.com. So before we jump into our next topic, we'd love to learn more about your personal professional histories, how each of you got into this space and, and how have you grown your career in the impact investing space? Yeah, I got to Calvert 15 years ago, but I got to community development five years before that. So actually working at a community development financial institution, investing in community. And then 10 years before that, I was more in traditional finance with the two years before that in the Peace Corps as a teacher in Africa. All of them have come together to get me to where I am today. And I think that's the piece that I enjoy about my continued work in impact investing today is I do think at least at Calvert, we sit in the middle of investors, community, government, and kind of all those pieces and having had experiences in all those different realms has been really, really valuable in seeing how they can come together to fund one deal or come together to really address, you know, affordable housing or renewable energy or whatever opportunities we're engaged in. So for me, it's been kind of a building of different tools and different experiences to find my way to impact investing. But there was like particular moment of, oh my gosh, this doesn't make sense to me or, oh my gosh, you know, I need to find something else. And the first one came in the Peace Corps where I was living in a situation where the community, the whole village worked together to get things done. And I really learned the power of the community over the individual, which was more of a value system I grew up in America with. The second, oh my God, moment was working at Morgan Stanley on a mergers and acquisitions transaction and having three months put pen to paper to find, you know, how awesome this transaction was going to be because there was going to be so much cost savings and so much gain and market share to realize that culturally, these two companies did not want to be in the same room together. And it really was an aha moment that it is the people, not just the profits that matter. That threw me for a hot second. And then I think the last one um, I'm still trying to wrestle with, but that's when I worked um, in a local context here in Washington, D.C., investing in community. It was a gentrifying community. And when the big box retailers moved in, I knew my work there was done. I was proud of the work that we had done collectively in ensuring the anchor institutions, so the dance studio, the schools, some of the childcare centers all had been able to root themselves in community because they either bought their building or had long-term leases. So there was some center of community, but the people that were using those facilities had to move out. And that, you know, still today, I think is an example of some of the challenges we wrestle with in this work is how do you really listen to community? How do you really find solutions that work for all? How do you really use finance as a tool to create equitable and good outcomes? And so those are things that, you know, I think are still part of the journey for me and keep me really engaged in the work in ways that perhaps other careers would not have kept me at the table. Yeah, and I would say pretty similar themes, very different path, but I also have had a background across the public, private, and social sectors 
I was a community organizer. I worked for a bank. I worked at the White House for a bit on policymaking. I worked at management consulting firm. And having a foot and experiences across the three sectors, I think was extremely important in, in recognizing that to solve our really big, hairy, intractable global challenges, all three sectors have to be at the table. And that's what I've really loved about the work that we do. And, and I think the impact investing field overall is that it is really looking at how do we identify a challenge and how do we bring together partners collaboratively across the three sectors to think about how to address that challenge holistically. And that's why the market building, the market transformation work that we are focused on has really been so exciting to work on because it does touch each of them. You have to know what it feels like to sit in each of those seats and what the motivations are and what the objectives are to really put the puzzle pieces together to try to address the problem. And so that's really, you know, similar to Jen, I think really how it all kind of stitched together to this place in a way that feels like a place that doesn't exist in a lot of other sectors. My professor at Duke, Kathy Clark, calls it tri-sector leadership, similar to tri-sport athletes. But it is really when she did a deep dive on a lot of the leaders in the impact investing sector, that was a trend that a lot of them had had experiences across sectors and were really looking to pull those out in order to address certain challenges. Excellent. Excellent. I remember Kathy Clark from when I was in business school as well. Just she was a thought leader in the space and still is. But that actually segues very well into our next topic, which is the National Clean Investment Fund, or NCIF, which is a $14 billion competition run by the EPA to provide grants to about two to three national nonprofits that are providing clean financing and capable of partnering with the private sector to provide accessible, affordable financing for clean energy projects, especially for those from disadvantaged communities. Now, Calvert Impact is very involved in this competition. And so tell us a little bit about the coalition that you've built and how you are trying to bring the three sectors together in this effort. Yeah, absolutely. So the National Clean Investment Fund, we're so excited about it because it really was created to drive the adoption of existing clean technologies, things like solar panels, heat pumps, electric vehicles, for a much broader population to make the clean energy transition real and tangible for American families, and particularly those who are not benefiting from the transition today. And so, as you all know better than most, these technologies have significant benefits, particularly benefits on a family's budget, right? Uh, eliminating gas prices, reducing energy bills, but they're often things that are too expensive for most families to access. And they require access to credit, they require access to information and technical support that is not often available in low-income and disadvantaged communities, in rural communities, in tribal communities. And so this program was really built to address that gap, to make sure that as a country, when, as we transition, the benefits of that transition are not just accruing to the richest Americans, but those benefits are accruing across the country to everyone, and everyone is benefiting from it. And so that is a, you know, so core to the mission that we have had for decades in terms of how to increase access to credit, how to increase access to opportunity, to basic services, and how to create the financial products and the overall market transformation in order to get there. And so 
it's this you know massive market gap that we're really excited about trying to leverage this program to serve. And so what it takes is going to be a, a collaborative effort, like you mentioned, a coalition approach to do this. And so we have been engaging with a broad network of partners, community lenders, green finance providers, technical assistance providers, contractors, workforce development organizations, labor, right? all the pieces of the ecosystem that have to come together. And after doing a lot of listening for almost nine months after the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, we started to put together the coalition that we're now calling Climate United to really hold the strategy that we think is necessary to meet the objectives of the program. And that is a partnership between ourselves, Calvert Impact, Community Preservation Corporation, a national nonprofit CDFI based in New York, and Self Help, a family of nonprofit loan fund and credit unions based in Durham, North Carolina. Go Duke. And so between us, we feel like we've got a really strong coalition of partners that can really maximize the potential benefit of this program in driving that adoption for the communities that the program was built to serve. Excellent. And so what sorts of projects do you envision if you are successful in your application that Climate United would focus on? Yeah. So it is really this intersection between where we can see significant GHG reduction, emissions reduction, and co-benefits for American families. And so we're looking across a broad set of market segments. We're looking at how to decarbonize and electrify single-family homes. We're looking at how to provide access to electric vehicles for a broader set of families across the country. We're looking at how to electrify and decarbonize multifamily housing, community facilities like schools and health clinics. We're looking at commercial and small business properties, both buildings as well as fleets to make sure that small business owners across the country are benefiting from this transition and accessing the credit they need to adopt the technologies. We're looking at municipal facilities, and then we're looking at kind of standalone or distributed generation of renewable energy. So it's going to be a broad set of product types, a broad set of sectors that we're serving, but all within this core thesis. So if we want to be doing projects that reduce GHG and help the U.S. meet its overall climate goals, but doing so in a way that also brings significant benefit to people's lives in a way that they can really touch and feel so that it becomes more real. And this conversation around climate change becomes less about doom and gloom and fear and disaster and more about how accelerating this transition is actually good for people's pocketbooks, good for people's families, for the air they breathe, and for their children. We can make it a more climate positive conversation. (laughs) So how specifically are you measuring these tangible impacts to American families? Like give us two or three examples of how American families could specifically benefit from the sorts of projects you would like to channel these funds to. Yeah. So we want to put solar on a lot of homes. So we want to make sure that that is a benefit that's getting to more people. We put solar on our roof a few years ago, and our electric bills went from $200 a month to $10 a month, right? I have four kids in DC, right? That is a major family budget benefit that accrued because I was able to put solar on my roof, right? We want to do that for a lot more families. We want to convert school buses to electric, right? We think particularly in low-income communities, looking at transportation as a major contributor to air pollution and issues with the air that children breathe, particularly kids with asthma, 
looking at how we're reducing air pollution in those communities and taking IC kind of internal combustion engine cars and buses and trucks off the road. We want to be putting solar and storage on health clinics so that those health clinics both have a reduced operating budget, but also are more resilient. So with solar and storage options, if the power goes out, they have backup to keep critical health services alive while people are accessing care, particularly for health clinics serving low-income and disadvantaged communities. So there's going to be a lot of activities, a lot of types of investment, and we'll be measuring impacts similar to how we talked about earlier, everything from the on the ground, how many projects were done up through the market transformation, how we really shifted the adoption of these technologies and made them more financeable for a broader set of investors. And one of the goals of the NCIF is to mobilize, you know, a multiple of private capital as a result of these public dollars that hopefully you and your coalition will be channeling. And so how are you planning to work with the private sector in ensuring that we're actually doing projects that otherwise wouldn't be done, that we're mobilizing the maximum amount of private sector capital we can? You know, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, so every project that can be funded by these funds have to meet six criteria. And one of the six is that the project would not have otherwise been financed. And so we are very focused on understanding where the market is today, where capital is flowing and where it's not. And for where it's not, particularly where there's the intersection with those kind of co-benefits I mentioned, why? Is it an access issue? Is it a last mile distribution issue? Is it a risk issue? What is the gap that is in the market that is not enabling the private capital flow? And how are we leveraging these funds to address that gap, but only up to the point where we are catalyzing the investment, right? We don't want to be displacing money that would otherwise be flowing because we know that $14 billion is a lot of money. It's not nearly enough to facilitate the transition and for the country to meet its 2050 goals. And so we want to make sure that every one of these precious dollars is being used to catalyze private capital to its greatest extent so that we can be shifting the behavior, similar to what Jen was mentioning before, shifting the behavior of markets to adopt these technologies or these communities and building the case along the way that these are financeable assets. So there might be assets today that credit risk that institutional investors or private investors aren't willing to take on certain consumers or certain commercial properties or buildings. What we want to show is we want to build the track record of repayment for those assets so that seven years from now, 10 years from now, we don't need this subsidy in order for the market to adopt that activity. And that's kind of developed through data, practice, repayment, so that we can have the hard evidence to show all our finance friends that this is possible. Excellent. Well, best of luck in the competition for the NCIF. As we've said publicly at Hassi, we're supportive of your efforts and we really hope your team is successful. So we're almost done, but first we have the hot seat. So we ask for your immediate reactions to the following statements and you both can take them, one can take each, whatever you want to do. One thing I've changed my mind on is... You want me to go? Changing minds. So I always thought that what we did was finance and investing, but I'm starting to realize it's also behavior change. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about the NCIF and what it can do is it can reach down and touch 
a lot of Americans and really demonstrate how things can be different and then open their minds to making changes in other parts of their life. So changing minds. Love it. When I need to recharge, I... Aha, I had one for this. Oh, you Yeah, you go. I should say, hang out with my beautiful, adorable children. Oh, please. But that is not how I recharge. (laughs) (laughs) I typically, I, I watch really really bad romantic comedies. Oh. That is my... What's your favorite? Or what's the worst one? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I can't say that publicly. Right now, we're, I'm watching Sweet Magnolias on Netflix. Okay. Which is... I've always always wanted to be a kind of a small town Southern girl. And so it just plays to that. I love it. What was yours? Doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I have found myself wandering around and just, you know, trying to process so much. I mean, I think sometimes I get burnt out because there's so much going on. Yeah. And we are in a moment with so much opportunity to make change. And I deeply feel we need to grab it and go. And so sorting all that in my head, I find myself just wandering around sometimes, taking long walks, cleaning. Cleaning can do it too. But something that lets my brain just take everything, process it, and make sense of it. Yeah. Reflection is underrated in this day and age. Um, There you go. That's a simple (laughs) answer. (laughs) The key ingredient to my productivity is? My four children. Really? I was going to go with coffee. No. No. (laughs) No. I I feel like I want to maximize maximize my time with them, maximize my time at work. And so it is, I feel like post kids, I have been much more productive. Yeah. Excellent. I want my kids to know. For me that I'm really proud of them. They're becoming adults. So they're 17 and 15 and I'm really proud of them. Mm. And I would say mine are little. And I would say that all of this, all of this work is for them and their peers. I mean, I think about a lot, hoping that when they are your kid's age or in their 20s or 30s, looking back and saying that their parents' generation really did something to change the trajectory of the climate disaster and some of these other global challenges, and that we did our darndest to do something about it. Excellent. Beth, I know you're new to Baltimore. Uh, In fact, you're probably still in the moving process, but the most underrated part of the city is? So I still have a lot to discover, but I would say the Science Center The Science Center downtown is one of my favorite places in the world and the way they've set it up and it's all about science and discovery and invention and it's interactive and fun and I go there with my kids and could spend all day there. It's really a special place. And finally, to me, climate positive means... That's a good question because it's so big. It's everything. Climate positive is everything that we've been talking about, the solutions, the positivity, that we can do it, that we are in control. It's not determined or predetermined that we're going to end up in a different place. So it's a mindset. To me, it's a mindset. Climate positive is, we got this one. Yeah, I would say similar. I mean, I think Cassie's done such a great job of embodying this, but it's about opportunity, not kind of doom. And the opportunity to reinvent ourselves, our economy, and the, the ways in which we do that is really, you know, could be a, a game changer 
across so many of our, our challenges, right? Could address inequality, can address access, can address health and wellness and, you know, so many things. And so I love the frame that you guys have really built to hold that feeling of opportunity. Excellent. Well, thank you both very much. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, Chad. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. This really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.